Hi, I'm Emma Sagner. I'm Julia Murphy. And today we have a non-babe guest with us. Do you want to introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Josh Clemson. Josh was a student of ours. He actually took the Exco when Julia and I were teaching it together back in 2016. It was just last spring. So a couple weeks ago we had Emily Hyken on the show. Um, and we told you all that she is taking over the Exco after we graduate. And I think we mentioned at the time that Josh is doing that with her, and he taught with us last semester. And we all had a really fun time last semester with, like, the craziness of politics. Our Exco was kind of this weird, like, respite for us all. Um, but yeah, so Josh, is, is that, does that kind of cover it? Are there other reasons you wanted to come on the show today? Uh, really, I just wanted to continue this idea of trying to teach and get into other forms of economics that aren't Oberlin and really keep in the in the rhythm of exco ideas so yeah yeah so basically we wanted to bring Josh on today because he knows a lot about Keynesianism or post-Keynesianism or other forms of Keynesianism which is what we're talking about on today's episode of Babes Talk Money Like we usually do, I'm going to read the one-sentence summary by Chang uh, that describes the Keynesian school. So the one-sentence summary this week says, what is good for individuals may not be good for the whole economy. This is an idea that we've touched on a lot. Um, It goes back to this idea of institutions. Um, But anyway, so this week we're doing post-Keynesianism, which, as I'm sure you can assume, comes from Keynesianism. Keynesianism started when John Maynard Keynes published The General Theory uh, in 1936. And you may have heard of Keynes before, even if you don't have an economics background, because he was one of the really famous scholars that helped push the New Deal. So if you've ever seen the epigraph battle between John Maynard Keynes and Julia, who's the other? It's Hayek, right? Right, right, right. It's Hayek. So there's this really great YouTube video. If you haven't seen it, you should. Sort of talking about these two ideas of saving versus investment. And Keynes is big on investment, which means that he believes in government spending, he believes in individual spending, he believes that debt finances the building of an economy. Uh, So he was really in favor of the New Deal, he believed that spending was going to help, and as we know it really did. So yeah, that's sort of where post-Keynesians started, but there are actually lots of forms of Keynesian economics that still exist today. Yeah. Totally. So um, a lot of those have been sort of incorporated into the mainstream. So like we all, as part of our economics major, had to take macroeconomics, um, where we kind of covered a lot of the ideas that Keynes talks about. But basically, all of this also comes about in terms of like economic history, which we talked a little bit about in the first show. And basically, Keynesianism was very popular before this like rise of neoliberalism. And so there's always that distinction between sort of like the dominant ideologies during a time and then the sort of in practice, what the economy looked like. So there's a lot of a lot of stuff going on here. But basically, that was sort of a very brief me touching on the situation or like how this is situated within economics, because before Keynes, there wasn't macro. It was just all micro thinking. So we're going to be talking a lot about macroeconomics versus microeconomics in this episode. So I just want to give some sort of functional definitions or just a sense of what those two things are. So macroeconomics is something that was invented by Keynes, which Emma sort of talked about. Um, Microeconomics was what economics was 
pre-teens. And it's basically just like people, individuals, and individual markets. So it's like the market for apples and you have your producer and you have your consumers, but it's very like simplistic and straightforward and it sort of lends itself to this idea that the market can regulate itself because you say like look how beautiful these these like equilibriums these supply and demand graphs are and they'll just like work themselves out they'll get there and i think that's like a huge disservice and creates a lot of problems um as we sort of talked about anyway so macroeconomics is like no wait you can't you can't just like assume that because like the apple market works out the like orange market will also work out and that the orange and apple and the entire fruit market will work out and so they sort of like take a step back and they talk about all these scary sounding concepts like inflation and unemployment and interest rates and loans and bonds and all these fun financial sounding scary words that aren't that scary when you get down into it um, at least we don't think so, but we're a little biased. Um, anyway, so macroeconomics is just sort of looking at the entire economy and how, like, smaller actions will impact that, and then how bigger actions, obviously, will also impact that. Yeah, something interesting to note is that a lot of the times when we discuss examples that we think, uh, are too general or they don't consider what a real person might make decisions based on, those are usually problems that we would theoretically be doing in a microeconomics class. Whereas when we discuss things like policy implications, interest rates, general like bigger ideas about the entire economy and how to work the economy and how to regulate it, that stuff all falls under macroeconomics. So another central axiom of post-Keynesianism is that expectations drive investment, which as we said, investment is what makes the economy run. So what they're saying here is if people expect that they will be continuing to get a living wage and they'll be able to afford their own consumption bundle, then they will continue to spend in the same way. Um, So this needs to be thought of sort of under this bubble of what really separates Keynesianism from post-Keynesianism is that post-Keynesianism really believes that the future is uncertain, that we can't predict what's going to happen. And for that reason, people's expectations don't always line up with the necessary demand to grow an economy. Cool. So what Emma just said um, really like ties into this idea of the business cycle, because basically this uncertainty, not fully, but in large part, is what leads to recessions and the business cycle is all about recessions and periods of expansion or growth so is the economy getting bigger is gdp growing etc etc or is gdp shrinking so yeah talk a little more about that josh yeah so the idea of keynesianism is to smooth out these business cycles so when the economy is booming you have retractionary policy and when it's in recession you have expansionary policy so The means to accomplishing this are having full employment and government spending. So full employment means that 
everyone has an income, uh, so they're more likely to have constant levels of consumption. And government spending comes in really when you have these cycles, they can spend in the recession and run surpluses during uh, booms. Yeah, exactly. And I just want to clarify, Josh, when you say things like expansionary or contractionary policy, you're talking about government spending like what we saw the government doing during the New Deal. That would be expansionary policy. Correct. Yeah. So the problems with these policies are that they inevitably lead to uh, rapid inflation. So in theory, this shouldn't happen because during periods of Uh, boom, the government will stop spending money and employment rates can fall, but that doesn't happen. So when you have full employment, that leads to something called a tight labor market. So when everyone is employed, employers to attract uh, more people have to raise wages, which in turn leads to inflation. Secondly, increased government spending also leads to inflation. And when that government spending is not reversed in periods of uh, expansion, then more inflation. Yeah, and so if you think about what Josh just said, he was basically saying that like if things are expanding and the government keeps spending money, that, that creates inflation. And so why does that happen? Basically, it's saying that you're pumping more money into the economy, but you're not actually adding more value to the economy, which is why the, that money is now not as valuable. Um, so this goes back to like just like what is inflation which we talked about on a previous episode Um, but basically inflation is the devaluation of money um, which i know is very scary to hear those words but basically all they're saying is that your five dollars used to buy you a hamburger and now you need six dollars to buy that same hamburger yeah And there is a natural level of inflation that happens all the time, and that's why you hear about how, you know, your parents bought their house for some ridiculously small, seemingly small sum of money back in the 80s or whatever, because the value of money is constantly changing, and that's healthy and that's natural. But what we're talking about is increased inflation that is unnecessary and is going to make problems in the economy. We started off with like this quote from Chang about how what's good for the individuals isn't necessarily good for the whole economy. Um, And so that idea is something that's true of both Keynesian and post-Keynesian, more or less. Um, So there's this quote from the reading we do in the class that's like specific to post-Keynesianism. And basically, it's a long quote, so I'm not going to read the whole thing, but basically they are rejecting microeconomics. Not completely, but by and large, that's sort of like what they're about. Um, So this sentence reads, post-Keynesians reject both methodological individualism and the priority given to microeconomics over macroeconomics. So that's sort of a big sounding concept, but it's just the idea that you can't judge the economy based on the individual, and that also 
in saying that, they're rejecting the idea of Homo economicus, our friend who we love talking about on the show. We've talked about him every week now. Um, but in case someone's listening for the first time, I'll just say briefly, Homo economicus is this idea that people are perfectly rational and that they always make their decisions based on this very individualistic, self-centered rationality. So as Emma said in the past, that's ignoring ideas of like institutions, of families, of different things that actually go into making decisions. Um, and so I think this is really crucial because we said in the first episode when we were talking about neoclassical, how economists, neoclassical economists in particular, reject homo economicus, but they don't replace it with anything better, and then they still sort of use it as the basis of models, even though they're like, yeah, this isn't actually an accurate depiction of what humans are like, but we're going to use it anyway. And post-Keynesianism, through taking this like macro lens, does a really good job, I think, of rejecting homo economicus in a way that's actually impactful and not just acknowledging it, but then using it anyway. Yeah, and I think they reject homo economicus not just in this idea of, I think the main idea is that it's not just an individual that's making a decision, that they reject methodological individualism, which we talked about on last week's episode. They embrace the idea of institutions and group structures, but in addition they embrace the idea of historic time versus logical time. Um, Sometimes economics will take into account time but they use something that post-Keynesian economists call logical time, which uh, is sort of assuming that things will continue moving in the way that they do, and that there's this natural equilibrium to things. Whereas post-Keynesian doesn't really believe in equilibrium in the same way, and they do believe that it's really important to look at history in the past as a guide, but not a guide that actually determines what will happen in the future. Yeah, so basically like this connects to this concept of universality, which we've talked about before on the show, Um, but basically neoclassical is trying to say that everything, like humans can sort of be boiled down to like the individual and all individuals more or less will act the same in a given situation based on like this principle or idea of rationality. And I think what is powerful about Keynesianism and post-Keynesianism is that it it kind of by looking at history rejects that idea because part of the reason that neoclassical economists don't really care about history i mean not not that they don't at all because i definitely think it comes into how we look at the economy but at least in theory they don't it's because it's like boiled down to this point where it doesn't matter because it should like people are going to act the same it doesn't matter if it's 1920 or So last week, um, or a couple weeks ago, I guess, somebody came who was applying for the macroeconomics position 
in the econ department, and Emma and I took him out to dinner, which is like something people do at Oberlin when they're visiting um, potential professors. And his whole talk was about animal spirits, which is fun because it's very relevant to our show today, since that was Keen's big thing. And I'm gonna be totally honest, I didn't understand even a sentence of his talk. Me either. <laughs> but it was kind of fun, or I was excited going into it because animal spirits are kind of cool. It was also kind of funny because a friend of mine, I read the title to her and she was like, oh, that sounds really cool. But it turns out that she thought it was like talking about like indigenous religions and like animal spirits as like <laughs> this concept. But anyway, what are animal spirits, Emma? So on this podcast, we've talked a lot about what rationality is and what different schools consider rational and what we personally consider rational. And... Keynes had a very peculiar idea about rationality and consumers, which was this idea of animal spirits that basically said that people feel random bursts of motivation to invest or to save. Uh, Kind of a crazy version of rationality, but I think he was just trying to make sense of the fact that a lot of the time we can't make sense of the way that people invest or choose to invest their money. So Keynesianism started right after World War II and went until the 1970s when it ended in this inflationary crisis. And throughout that period, it was really government-driven. So the government was focusing on getting full employment and spending in welfare capacities in order to keep demand constant. Uh, Following the 1970s inflationary crisis, though, we moved on to a period of neoliberalism. This author that I've been reading for a class, Colin Crouch, has this idea, though, that Keynesianism as a whole didn't go away. Um, He introduces this idea of privatized Keynesianism, which is basically that individuals take on personal debt rather than the government taking on debt in order to smooth demand and consumption. And this isn't exactly a school of thought, it's more a theory on how the economy is running. So he broke it up into the epoch of Keynesianism and privatized Keynesianism. Post-Keynesianism developed kind of following the end of classical Keynesianism. And the idea is that they want to get back to a, a period where the government is driving demand smoothing and consumption smoothing rather than putting that onus on the individual. Keynes said that in the long run, everyone is dead, um, <laughs> but that doesn't work for the government. So government debt and individual debt operate very differently, and post-Keynesianism is driving for the latter. Right, for consumer debt. So Josh, I'm curious when you talk about this privatized Keynesianism, um, when was that? So privatized Keynesianism comprises the period um, from the 1980s up until its own crisis in 2008. So basically, each of these epochs is 30 years, and they each end in a crisis driven by kind of internal contradictions. So with privatized Keynesianism, you have the problem of uh, personal debt and bad debt being driven up, and kind of a focus on the individual making choices against their best interests in order to 
achieve macroeconomic goals. Okay, that's what I thought, and I was expecting you to say around the 80s or the 90s, and I think that that lines up really nicely with neoliberalism and also sort of this like pseudo-roaring 20s type feeling that happened in the 80s with this big boom where people felt like they had a responsibility to their economy to spend, 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 to continue pumping it up. Um, and it's interesting because I feel like that is the story that I think about when I think about the economy in the beginning of neoliberalism, but I've never heard it referred to as privatized Keynesianism, and now that you've explained that, it's exactly what that is. Yeah. yeah. Another problem that Keynesianism encountered going into the 1970s was the advent of globalization. And what globalization did is it really restricted uh, the ability of governments to operate autonomously on a national level. So when you have governments trying to pump up demand through government spending, welfare spending, in a globalized society, a lot of that uh, demand pump is just moving outside of the country. So the government has uh, fewer tools with which to um, pursue this Keynesian goal. Um, so in the 1980s, you saw a lot of um, retrenchment of welfare, government spending, um, that kind of thing, in part because it was less effective. And so in privatized Keynesianism, um, that moved into credit markets. So um, the expansion of credit cards, um, mortgages, stuff like that. Yeah, and so credit, just as a concept, I want to quickly define it. I mean, it's something we've all heard, but just, you know, to be super clear um, and transparent on this podcast. But basically the idea is that, like, all of those things that Josh just listed are things where you borrow money that you then owe. Um, so it's it's like getting back into this this issue of debt. And so before, Josh said something about how 2008 was like this crisis of personal debt, and that came about because of mortgages. Um, I don't know how much our listeners know about the 2008 recession, and there's a lot to be said, a lot of research still being done. Um, but basically, that all occurred, as you may or may not know, because of this housing bubble bursting, where basically people owned these houses that they couldn't afford to own, um, and then the houses lost all this value, and all their these people's livelihood, all their wealth was like tied up in this house that all of a sudden was completely invaluable, or not completely, but like practically invaluable, and also was like what they owed on it was too much for them to pay. And so then you have like banks taking over houses and it's this like huge issue. Um, and I think that also gets back into this thing that we started with of like how something can be good for the individual but not for the whole economy. If you think about that whole crisis, it really like, some people did really well. There are a couple people, if you see the movie, um, what am I thinking of? The Big Short? Yes. <laughs> I always forget the name for some reason. Anyway, it's like, these people made a ton of money in the recession because they basically bet against the housing market in a time where people had so much confidence in it that they were like, it can never fail. But it was creating this 
like meanwhile this huge bubble was happening that people didn't really realize or see um and so basically when that bubble burst when people realized that the ha- these houses weren't worth as much as everyone thought they were these people who had bet against the housing market made a ton of money and that's like a i think a very good example of how that's clearly good for those individuals but clearly obviously 2008 recession was bad for pretty much everyone else yeah and it's interesting that that is how you brought that up because i also think that the 2008 financial crisis is an example of that sort of one sentence summary of what's good for the individual isn't necessarily good for the whole economy on the completely opposite direction as well which is that people were getting loans to buy houses that they could not afford they did not deserve those houses based on their credit rate and based on their income And like Josh said, one of the important things about the original Keynesianism is that Keynes says, in the long term, everyone's dead. This is sort of his justification for why you continue to take on debt instead of saving. Um, And in this case, had the economy not collapsed, had there not been a housing bubble, there would have been a lot of people that got houses that wouldn't have gotten houses otherwise. Um, So in a lot of ways, people could have benefited from this if everyone wasn't doing this because everyone was taking out subpar loans and everyone was you know everyone in the financial market was investing in these subprime loans the entire market collapsed but had the market not collapsed a lot of people would have sort of come away as bandits and likely would have had their mortgages until they died and never paid them off true wait and real quickly emma um can you just tell us what a subprime loan is Sure. Subprime is sort of exactly what it sounds like. It just means less than the best. One of the biggest problems with the housing crisis was that a lot of subprime loans were marked as AAA loans because they were being grouped into packages, investment packages, um, that were thousands and thousands of subprime loans put all together. And because typically housing loans are very stable in the past, although they weren't during this time, obviously, Um, Those got marked as extremely safe investments, even though the individual loans inside were subprime. Right. And the reason that that those loans were bad or subprime was because, as Emma said before, people couldn't actually afford the houses that they were buying. Right. Right. So we got a little sidetracked there talking about the recession, but I think it's important and definitely relevant because Keynesianism was such a big part of macroeconomics, and that's what what recessions are all about. Um, So yeah, recessions are all part of the business cycle, and you wanted to talk a little more about that, Emma. Yeah, I just want to sort of wrap up for the audience. Um, I think we've said a lot of things in different pieces, but I just want to clear up sort of the main ideas of post-Keynesianism, which is basically to smooth the business cycle. A natural business cycle goes through booms and busts. We've seen this all throughout history. Um, And sort of the idea behind... Keynesianism, and specifically post-Keynesianism, is to sort of smooth these business cycles, literally physically smooth how they look on the graph, make our economy look more of a straight line than a bunch of waves, because in those down swoops of waves, that's where there's a lot of unemployment, that's where our production goes down and our GDP goes down and people suffer. Um, And so they smooth those cycles by creating necessary demand. Like we said, the first and most important axiom of post-Keynesianism is that the economy is demand-driven. And so in this, when you take those two things together, the one is that uh, investment is better for the economy than saving, and also that the uh, economy is demand-driven. 
when you put those two ideas together, you sort of get this policy implication that the government should be filling in demand where necessary. And that can mean spending, like we've said a million times, spending on projects like the New Deal. And specifically, when we think about the New Deal, we think about employment. Um, we think about trying to achieve full employment, trying to get more people to have jobs so that they have money, so that they can turn around and invest in the economy. Um, and so this is, you know, work, work projects like building and infrastructure and all those kinds of things. That's what neo, that's what uh, post-Keynesianism is really all about, is the smoothing of the business cycle and sort of infusion of employment opportunities and of demand. Yeah, um, totally. That was a great summary. Thank you, Emma. Um, just a few things I want to pull out from that are, first of all, that I think what's kind of crazy about um, the Great Depression and how these like New Deal policies worked is that um, we assume they were effective, but we can't really know because it's not an isolated thing because right after that was World War II and a lot of thought is that World War II is really what got us out of the crisis um, because the government all of a sudden was um, very involved. And so like what's interesting there is that it's not like what we really think about when we think about Keynes because Keynes was so attached, at least in my mind and I think in Emma's too, to the New Deal. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, that is still his theory and his ideas because the government was spending so much money in this war. Yeah, that's what I was going to say is there is, it's really interesting that sort of in academic economic debate about how to fix a financial crisis or how to fix a recession, there is this argument about um, does investment fix it or does it hurt it? Should we save or should we invest? And like we've said, Keynes is someone who believes in investing. And I think that a lot of people would argue that the New Deal and the end of the Great Depression, the Great Depression having been the biggest financial crisis we've ever seen, um, even today, even after the 2008 financial crisis, is that what we saw happening after the New Deal was, like Julia's saying, this massive investment. And although that kind of investment that you have during a world war is not something that you could ever manufacture throughout through government policy, but then in fairness, it is, you're right, it is an example of what Keynes was saying. It's an example of extreme investment. So regardless of whether we want to say that the New Deal is what pulled us out or it was, you know, the massive infusion of cash into the economy during World War II, either way, it falls under this category of investment. Yeah, totally. Um, there's also just one more point um, I have here from our notes from teaching that just says income distribution affects demand, and I think that's really interesting to think about like with this mass um, unequal income indis distribution that we currently have. Um, so I think I'm not going to go too into detail with that, but one of the reasons I wanted to bring it up is just to talk briefly about something we've been talking about with these other schools about can this replace neoclassical or should it just be in addition to it? Um, I think kind of like what we saw last week, um, it is more something with Austrian, it is more something that's designed in a way that would kind of replace neoclassical. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that that's good and I think that it would work better and could work better with a lot of the other um, schools that we look at. So like feminist 
by like through this lens of looking at gender ends up talking a lot about income in like inequality yeah, income distribution absolutely yeah and so i think that's something that's kind of cool and i think that for both of us this is a more appealing uh way of looking at economics because it seems more accurate in like how it's defining rationality how it's looking at history etc cetera, etc cetera. but also quite frankly it lines up with our beliefs better and you know you can't really i mean that's very subjective but i think it is important um to us that like the welfare state is there and this kind of justifies it but again um as we sort of talked about macroeconomics which is taught at oberlin for example um is like pretty based on Keynes, and so it's about how we can connect that to all of economics and do we need micro and what's the purpose of micro there's just so many questions that come up here but i just wanted to briefly touch on like how this fits into the larger scope of different schools of thought within economics. Yeah, and I think that as we've been recording this episode, we've really felt the pressure of this kind of school being similar to Austrian, but different from a lot of the other schools that we have talked about and that we are familiar with because it is sort of a fully encompassed, fully formed uh, empirical school that is designed not to work in a pluralistic way with neoclassical, but is, is really designed to replace it. Yeah. Um, so we've, we've had a lot to unpack during this episode, that's for sure. So Josh, before we let you go, at the end of each episode, we like to do a little section about what it's like to be a woman in economics. That's why this show is called Babes Talk Money. Obviously, uh, you are not a babe, but we're curious what you think. You've actually been in classes with both of us at different times, um, and obviously you took the exco with us, you taught the exco with us. So we're curious, like, what do you think is different about being a woman in economics, and what, you know, what do you think is the difference between our experiences? Um, one thing is definitely, um, representation. So I only really have experience with this in an academic setting. Um, but I would assume that it kind of covers women in economics in general. Um, women just aren't as present. So in all the economics classes I've taken, you see mostly guys. Um, similarly, I've also noticed kind of, uh, grade discrepancy so a lot of the women I've worked with um, I've worked with very closely and we've done extremely similar work but when we get grades back there's often subtle differences in the forgiveness we're given on doing something wrong or doing something correct and it usually favors me as a guy and um, does the opposite for the women I work with. Whoa, that's crazy. I that never is knew crazy. that. I was just curious, like, when did you start noticing these things? Was it just, like, obvious? Or did you, was there a, one moment where you're like, whoa, I'm one of many men, and there, like, aren't that many non-men or women? I mean, it was pretty evident the unequal gender distribution in classes from the very start. Um, I mean, once you get past Econ 101, it's almost, 
I would say 70% or more guys. Yeah. Um, the grade distribution part took more time, but and it's it's definitely subtle, but I think it's there. Yeah, and not to call anyone out in particular, but we have talked before about professors who we know have discouraged women from taking the mathematics concentration. I I can't speak for why that would happen or why there would be a grade discrepancy, but my best guess would be that a lot of the time, I think that professors sort of are inclined to believe that mistakes that female students make are because it's just not the right discipline for them. Um, whereas mistakes that men make sort of seems more like it was just an error or it was just a typo or that kind of thing. But I also do want to say what you, what you were saying made me think of the fact that I've also thought a lot about how it can be more difficult for women to break into econ or like you said, once you get out of econ 101, it's like 70% guides. In part, I think that's because when you're in Econ 101 and you get a C on the test, and I've seen this happen a million times, like a woman who gets a C on the test is like, oh, uh, this is not the right discipline for me. I'm bad at this and I should try something else. Whereas a man is taught to sort of be more headstrong and be like, I got a C, so I have to work harder and next time I'll do better um, and are a little bit less easily discouraged. But yeah, that's, thank you so much for sharing those insights. That's really interesting. Yeah, totally. Yeah, and I, I think it's, like, so much of it is is so implicit. Like, it's not, like, an explicit, like, oh, we don't want women here. It's just, like, the same kind of mentality as, like, how people talk about when when Clinton was running, they were like, oh, she doesn't look very presidential. Right. Like, she doesn't look like a president. And, it, and like, when you analyze their reasoning, they're like, oh, her voice is shrilled. There's this, there's that. It's, like, all so related to, like, her femininity. Yeah. Yeah. And if you look at the faculty gender distribution, you'll see that it's even more extreme. I think we only have one female professor. We do only have one female professor who, thank you to Oberlin College for having her be the head of the department for the last four years, because that has really been a godsend for me personally, uh, to see the one woman professor really in a position of power. Yeah. But anyway, thank you so much again, Josh. Um, We'll be back with you all next week for um, another episode of Base Talk Money. Bye, Josh. Bye.